it's clicked. We are live. Okay. Always wait for you to say we are live. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Uh, wherever you are streaming from, uh, this is Jake Ruth and Daniel Prong bringing you Stock Talk, episode number 29, where we talk about recent earnings reports, stocks. We are huge stock nerds as well as founders of StockLock.com. If you are listening to us on Spotify, come check out the YouTube live show sometime. And if you are with us on YouTube, you could catch us asynchronously on Spotify. Daniel, good morning. How is the weather there in Canada? I'm seeing some beautiful sunshine uh, come straight through your window there. Dude, the weather here is pretty nice, actually. It's, uh, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit. I'm going to assume around 75 to 80. Let's just use Celsius because Fahrenheit's made up and silly. Uh, well, so is Celsius, but it's a, it's about 25 to 30 Celsius going to be over the weekend. So very nice here. Beautiful. It is rainy in New York, which I actually think is pretty, but definitely not the best day for a bike ride. Anyways, we all know why we're here. We're here to talk about stocks, not the weather. This is not a meteorology show. We are going to talk about Meta, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon earnings. No shortage of those this week. Daniel, I figured you could start us off with Meta. I know that at one point, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, you were a shareholder of Meta. What happened with earnings this week? Walk us through it. Are you still holding the stock? I'm not. I'm not holding the stock anymore. Um, yeah, you know. Dude, that, Mark Zuckerberg just let out a little tear. As some all the viewers here, Daniel in the past has been a shareholder of Meta. We obviously are investors. Maybe you could walk us through a bit. Yeah, I'm. Sorry, I'm just uh, getting my screenshots up. For sure. Okay, so... It's a roller coaster ride, to say the least. First off, so I made a video on Meta basically letting everyone know that I was for sure trimming my position and then I was considering selling all of it. Um, yes, and this is the type of comments that I received, which I think is fair, honestly. Daniel the Swing Trader. Uh, I tell you that as a friend. Yeah. I mean, not all your trades, by the way. I do think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. ...holds are long. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I also got a lot of a lot of comments, some of them uh, more mean on the mean end, a little bit rude. And uh, people were basically saying that I'm not a long-term investor or I don't, yeah, basically that I'm just not a long-term investor, which I think is fair. It's a fair comment to make because I believe that I was in Meta for less than a year. And the reason, it all comes down to this. As an individual investor, we're all in individual stocks for different reasons. So when I looked back at why I bought Meta in the first place, it was because I thought that the stock was too, sorry, too cheap to ignore. What was your entry actually? Like when did you start your position? I believe I started my position. I started buying it around 200 and then uh, I bought it all the way down to, I bought it below 90 at one point. So I was just buying it all the way down and I got my average down to I don't remember exactly what my average was, but when I sold it at around 240, I was up 46%. So if you want to reverse the math there, then uh, you can figure out the average. But so I was buying it all the way down and I was buying it because I believed that it was just getting so cheap. Like I thought that there was a point where Meta was like just an obvious buy in my opinion. But I always said in my videos that I thought that this was a more speculative stock, probably one of the most speculative stocks in my portfolio because I didn't or I don't feel confident in the company's future and I don't feel confident in them going all in on the metaverse. That's I've been con very consistent and open about that. So 
for this position, you know, I bought it because I thought it was super cheap. The stock ran 170% from the lows within six months. That's not a little move we're talking about. That is a massive change in value in six months. So at, at some point I was like, okay, this is my least confident position, my most speculative position for me. It's not a value stock anymore. Like it's trading at 30 times cash flow now. Um, it's growing revenue, but it's growing revenue by like 3%. So I thought it was actually looking above fair value and expensive. And I was like, I should probably just lock in these gains. There's nothing wrong with taking a gain. And one thing I wanted to call out and trying to bring up your stock price here is you just talked about one side of it where the stock tanked eventually hit a low of 90. I believe Mark started announcing efficiency measures, laying people off. I'll share my screen here, but the stock bounced back. Maybe you could talk about the emotions you went on a bit, because the other side of this is you started at 200. So this stock yep. literally lost almost 50% of its value. You stayed convicted on it. It got to the point where it was cheap. Within a year or two, it whipsaw to the point of, oh my gosh, the stock then redoubled. So this must have been an emotional roller coaster. For someone like me, I'm watching from the outside and being like, I am so happy I'm not you. <laughs> owning this stock. I'm very happy you had a gain on it, but what was running to your head? Like, did you ever want to sell it or did you only want to sell it once you saw it get to a valuation point where you were like, you know what, there's no margin of safety here anymore. And I have gains. I agree with some of the comments here that we got from a live chat. Like I'm not yeah. mad at you, Daniel, as an investor for being a swing trader. I think that's no. all when you see opportunity ticket, right? No, the thing is, is I didn't want to be a swing trader. It's just like, I don't <laughs> the market took it out of you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's just like, I don't think that you should hold a stock for the sake of holding it because you want to be a long-term investor or something. When the value changes to a point where you feel uncomfortable with the position and everything inside of you is like, this is not really a cheap stock anymore. Like probably should just lock in the gains and get out and move on. So I think that, you know, for me, at least as an investor, I want to be adaptable, which is why on my YouTube channel and on this channel, even when we come on the live streams, I may say, you know, I'm buying this stock, it might run. And then as the price changes, I think the investment has to change, at least for me. And yeah, we're, I, we're talking about what 170% move in six months. Like that is, that is a, that's a big move. And that's a big enough move for me to be like, okay, I'm going to reevaluate this investment. Yeah, I think that this is a good lesson. And I think a lot of people here, including myself, Daniel, have been consuming your content. And at least speaking for myself and a lot of viewers in the chat, tons of respect for you, all the free content you put out. I don't think we ever expect you to be perfect. One thing I think you have improved on a lot in me as well, as we all learn from each other, is I think a few years ago, you would make videos a lot saying, this is the stock, I'm going to be in this for 10 years and things like that. And then later on, I think you correctly make choices to actually exit because things just change so fast. And I think the lesson here, maybe for us, at least myself is the market is incredibly unpredictable and maybe it's yeah. very hard going into any position, predicting the future enough where I am a hundred percent sure I will hold this stock forever since it's very easy to come up with scenarios where, well, if the stock runs 10 X and the fundamentals didn't change, it probably would be silly yeah. for taking some gains out. So it just changes the perspective of me whenever I buy a stock where just what you're saying, Daniel, the intentions are to hold long. But it would be foolish to just hold to hold, which is actually trying to say, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Like you don't, or at least for me, I'm trying to talk as an individual here because I don't believe that what I did is right for everyone. I know a lot of people holding meta because they actually believe in the stock long-term and, you know, they want to hold it for like decades. That's great. But again, it just goes back to my initial reason I bought it. And it was just, I bought it because I thought it was cheap. 
I don't think that it's cheap anymore. So, like, that's that's all it came down to. <laughs> and, and for people following along, the newer investors in the chat, when we say cheap, we're actually mathematically analyzing the stock. So for Daniel here, cheap means when you looked at the free cash flows and operating cash flows that the business was generating, comparing the market cap of other tech companies in the market, the valuation of Meta at some points looked incredibly, uh, incredibly juicy, is what I like to yes. say. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> And, I mean, are there I, I think, anything to go through on the earnings here, Daniel, for Meta? Or? Yeah, we can. But uh, just talking about the valuation, I believe at the low there, it got down to a market cap of like $227 billion, and they had $40 billion of cash, very clean balance sheet. And it was still generating a lot of operating cash flow and even free cash flow. So that's what I mean. It got down to a point where the, the price for that business was just a little bit silly, in my opinion. But it, it exactly, Jonathan, it was irrationally cheap. And I don't think that's the case anymore. Just more um, money for Mark to blow on the metaverse, dude. Yeah, and then going back to your question about the emotions of that investment. So, I mean, yeah, at one point I was down probably 40 to 50%. I don't look at my account every day, so I don't know what the bottom there was. But, you know, there's nothing that tests your conviction like a stock being down 50% on you. I will say that. And We're, we're there with Baba right now, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've... I've <laughs> The thing is, like, I've been in this position before, and if you do truly have conviction, then it's just, I just dollar cost averaged it and lowered my average down. And that's why I made that 46%, because as I said, I initially started buying around like 200. And then if I didn't continue dollar cost averaging down, then I wouldn't have made as much of a percent gain or as much of a gain in general. So yeah, it was a roller coaster. I think I handled my emotions well, to be honest on it, because at the end of the day, like, I was willing to hold metal long for however long it took for the stock to recover. So I wasn't going to sell it at a loss or anything like that because I did, you know, it's, it's freaking meta, right? I mean, Mark is not a person to bet against either. I know the yeah. media throws a lot of shame at him, but this is a tenacious CEO. I would, you know, I, I don't personally believe in the metaverse, but I still would not bet against Mark. It's the same idea with Coinbase. Don't believe in it, but that CEO, not, to, not to be messed with. Okay, yeah. Um, Legend says, knowing when to sell is an art form in investing. I feel like Daniel has perfected the art of selling. I don't know if I perfected it. We'll see. But uh, I appreciate that. That's a good balance to some of the negative comments you've been receiving. But it's good to show that yeah. opinions are all over the spectrum there. One, yeah. one thing I think no one can take away from you, though, is you are always open about your moves. And even if there are things that you end up changing your mind on, which you rightfully should, you know, we're all humans. And I think the best thing we can do is, like you said, learn from what we're doing and i i know i have learned a lot from you personally now it's going bi-directional but yeah man i it's i approve of your trade not that you asked me but thank you yeah it's uh it's interesting i mean you know even warren buffett he may buy a stock like tsm and then three months later berkshire selling it and you know when you're a public figure i'm not gonna say that i'm a public figure i have like a decent youtube channel but uh I'm going to stop sharing my screen for a second. Not comparing yourself to Warren Buffett. No, I'm not definitely not comparing <laughs> myself to Warren Buffett. But what I'm trying to say is like, I used to let the opinions of my audience really sway my investment decisions. And that's something I really respect Warren for is he has, you know, a hundred times the people, if not a thousand times the people looking at his investments. And it doesn't seem like he lets the opinions of others sway his decision making at all, which is something I really had to learn from him. I don't know if I'm fully there yet, but 
I used to be on the total opposite end of the spectrum where it was like, I would literally hold a stock or buy a stock because I thought that my audience would like it. Or I thought, I thought that I wouldn't be ridiculed for doing so. Like if I sold a stock and I thought that I was going to get heat from it for my audience, I would just hold on to it, even though I knew it was the wrong thing to do. And, uh, that took a long time to overcome. And now I'm just like, I have to do whatever's best for my portfolio and I have to stay true to myself as the investor. Yeah. And I think doing that in the digital space is cool. So one of the reasons why Warren Buffett has claimed to live in Omaha is he's like, you know, it's, it's a slow town. Like, why would I live in Wall Street when people are chirping about stocks, talking about them all the time? Like he, in a world before was digitized, isolated himself geographically. And not that that was the only reason why he was able to stay away from people's opinions, but I think that's harder to do in the digital world. Like you said, you'll have comments from around the globe with eyes kind of watching what you do. So yeah, it seems like a challenge, but yeah. So like you said, you handled the emotions well here. Okay. Um, I'm also just going to quickly show very quick, um, some screenshots from Meta's earnings report. So this is 2023, their most recent report on the left side, 2022 Q1 is on the right side. So we can see their operating cash flow actually declined year over year, which by itself is not a horrible thing. However, the purchases of property, plant, and equipment, which, which is the CapEx, increased by $1.4 billion. So Meta's free cash flow actually dropped quite a bit year over year. And they said that this was going to be their year of efficiency. So saying that this is going to be their year of efficiency and then seeing free cash flow drop so much, I didn't love that. And then, <clears throat> oh no, I lost my tabs here. And then there was another one here, meta segments. So this is another thing. Their family of apps operating income declined year over year. The reality labs operating income massively declined year over year, which means their overall operating margin declined significantly to 25%. Now it did improve quarter over quarter. I will give them that. It was about 20% in Q3, 20% in Q4. So the operating margin is starting to come back, but year over year, um, it still was coming down quite a bit. So I don't know if they're going to continue improving margins over the rest of the year. I would speculate that they're going to, but just based on this report, I was like, you know, I, there was a lot that I didn't like about it. So that just added to me being like, you know, probably is a good time for me to get out of this stock. <laughs> How much did they spend on the metaverse this report? Uh, I actually don't remember the figure. I heard the number four billion, but I'm not confident on that. Maybe someone in the chat knows and they can help us out there. Anyway, that. yeah, I was gonna say, should we move on to Microsoft? Yes. Cool. Well, there you have it. If anyone has questions about Meta and you're just joining, just watch the recording. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna share my screen. So for those of you who follow the show, you may remember that I am a shareholder of Microsoft. Daniel is not, and there are some things that we agree on with Microsoft, some things we don't. One thing we definitely agree on is in terms of all the stocks in the market, this is getting, sorry, it's not getting expensive. It is expensive. And dare I say this, Daniel, we talked about Tesla last show. One of the things I said that we both agreed on was Tesla is one of those stocks where everyone is talking about it. Everyone's looking at it. What are you and I as investors, and this applies for a lot of us in the chat too, going to find in this stock that other people aren't seeing, which you could then argue for, you know, since the valuation is so high, is there any margin of safety? It almost seems like that's happening with Microsoft. 100% in my opinion, driven by both cloud AI, obviously they are peaking a lot of noise in the chat GPT space. We are actually consumers now at chat GPT. Anyway, yeah. I went ahead and took some screenshots and stuff. So yeah, just run through this on the quicker side, Daniel, and feel free to stop me for 
any conversation. Yeah, I'll just uh, make some quick comments about, before you go through this, what I took away from Microsoft's earnings report. I thought that it was decent. I didn't think that it was amazing. Um, I didn't think that it really deserved the stock to go where it went personally. But I will say that Azure seems to be the strongest cloud now, especially after Amazon's report, because Amazon reported year-over-year growth to the cloud of 16%. And uh, what was it? They had their first quarter-over-quarter decline in cloud revenue, whereas Microsoft is operating near the same scale now as AWS, but is still managing to grow faster than AWS and maintain higher growth rates. So it seems like Azure is looking, starting to look like the better cloud than AWS. Yeah, I don't want to hop around too, too much here, but what was interesting is in Amazon, I know we're not talking about Amazon yet, but with all this cloud chat, Andy Jassy said and cited basically economic slowdown for one of the reasons of the revenue, like topping off a little bit and that their customers are cost cutting. It just didn't add up to me when I also saw that Microsoft was adding. So my takeaway on that is actually that as the cloud business scales and grows, I think people need to change how they think about it. I think AI cloud computing and APIs around AI specifically has a way different like cost structure, intensity of compute resources, and just a little bit of a different interface than someone coming to do a static host on a server partition or like hosting just static files, if anyone's familiar with Amazon S3. So as an engineer, I don't have all these thoughts fully baked yet, Daniel, but I'm starting to try to think in my head should I even view these companies' clouds as like, quote, the cloud, <laughs> right? Or is it like, crap, is Microsoft winning the AI cloud, but like Amazon still has the OG server cloud on lock? Is Amazon yeah. going to be innovating? And obviously you throw Google into the mix here as well. Yeah, really another, another thing I thought about with the cloud the other day is right now cloud seems to be a land grab. So it seems yeah. like these companies are trying to sign on clients as quickly as they possibly can. So I'm wondering if one day far in the future, when cloud growth starts to slow down, are these companies going to see their margins start to compress because they're starting to compete more and more with each other over that client or this client or whatever? So it, are we in a phase right now where like, since it's such a land grab and it's growing so quick, do they have higher operating margins? And then one day the cloud will be kind of commoditized and margins will compress across the sector. I think that's going to happen. And here's my prediction. And no one's talking about this. What the cloud literally is, is racks of servers. There's no magical cloud. There's massive warehouses and data centers. Like, all right, cool, Jake, you knew that. Cool. But what people aren't talking about is the hardware that runs these. And you'll see companies highlight you write offs where it's like, oh, we thought this hardware would last like 2025, but we treated it well. And now it's lasting at 2027. So we're taking back this depreciation and amortization charge, blah, blah, blah. My point is there's going to be a time where these things need to get replaced. It is going to, and they're doing this actively. It's not like they just built the data centers once, but I think there's going to be an increased cost over time because of the size and scale of all their hardware of swapping it out, improving it, especially since the rate of hardware advances has been increasing uh, from Moore's law almost exponentially or debated yeah, exponentially. It's insane. I think all those costs are going to start to add up. So yes, what you're saying, I do think that we should expect margins eventually to compressed here and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out yeah i mean it's not a concern of mine right now but 
well, let me first finish that thought. It's not a concern of mine right now because I believe Amazon's, Amazon said something like 90% of businesses' IT is still hosted locally. And he believe, and Andrew or Andy Jassy believes that over the long term, all of that's going to go onto the cloud. So there's still a massive runway for growth, they believe. So yeah, I don't know when that's going to happen, if it ever is going to happen. But I was thinking about that last night, if the cloud is going to become kind of like a commodity long term and margins are going to compress. I don't think we'll see that for a long time, though, if it does end up happening. Yeah, and maybe that came off a little bit too bearish for me. Like when I say margins compressing, I still think these are going to be massive cash flow businesses. It's, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that they'll stay that high. They're going to be like a utility company, basically. <laughs> like, oh my god! Well, yeah, well, we'll say that for the end. I definitely have the tinfoil hat thought about okay. banks and utility companies, but I'm I'm gonna run through these super quick. Just had a couple interesting things I screenshotted from their earnings presentation and stuff like that. So they, one thing I love about Microsoft is they make it very clear how they're making money. I think their 10Ks filed for the SEC are very clear to read, with one exception that I'll bring up later. One thing that I don't think people are talking about a lot is LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn actually brought in. Three point, almost three point seven billion of revenue in uh, just the last three months of March alone. This was a company that they acquired, I believe, for just over twenty seven billion back in twenty sixteen. This is actually driven largely from subscription revenue. So my girlfriend actually had a subscription to LinkedIn when she was looking for jobs. I think those twenty five or thirty a month. Lots of talent acquisition growth there. So there's just a ton of areas of this business that keep growing. Just looking at their. Uh, cloud segment a bit i know we've been talking about this a lot you can see the revenues going up we were talking about the margins before at least for now daniel the margins are actually almost at all-time highs so what we were talking about before has not materialized yet and even when it does we're not talking about the business going down the one thing i really love about microsoft daniel is as they're just looking at this again as they're old school like windows and devices and things go down i mean you're looking at 28 percent drop windows oem 30 percent devices they're filling this in with linkedin cloud revenue. They just bought ChatGPT. We're literally paying for ChatGPT. People are buying those subscriptions like hotcakes, uh, the cloud. So this is a company that's proving that as time goes on, they're able to innovate and continue to make more revenue streams as existing business channels start to wind down. Yep. So that's something I do like to see, valuation aside. Here was a little cool thought exercise. Almost every single company, Daniel, reported a reduction in uh, operating cash flow relative to four quarters ago. And this was interesting to me, so I wanted to like dive on it a bit. So this is from the earnings presentation. You could see, okay, our cash flow is down. So I wanted to dig a little bit more. So I dug, and I this is a quote directly from their 10K filing. Uh, cash from operations decreased 5.6 billion to 58.8 billion for the nine months ended March 31st, and it said mainly due to an increase in cash paid to employees and suppliers and cash use to pay income taxes. So. This is just a little bit weird to me, Daniel, because I'm like, I didn't really see, like the selling and general admit, admin expenses like kind of went up a bit, but as a percent of revenue, it's actually more or less the same. It's 3%. There are like some comments here. So I'm like, why did they say this? Maybe you could walk me through why. What could have happened over time's going down. What they, what could have happened is um, they, instead of paying out so much stock-based compensation, which is deducted from operating cash flow or added back to it, sorry. If you pay actual cash to your employees, then that does lower operating cash flow. So if they're if they're changing the balance between stock-based compensation and actual cash payments to their employees, then this could be the result. Interesting, yeah. It's interesting to see the ratio stayed the same from revenue 
right here we're looking at, you can see the general admin quarter over quarter go up. It was 7.39 billion. Yes, the latest financials for Microsoft and Google are available in stock and lock. And yeah, this is the last one here from you, Daniel, actually noticing that the free cash flow margin on Microsoft was declining. So mm -hmm. as a shareholder, I'm definitely holding. I love the company. They're here to say, have a super strong balance sheet. And I can't really understand their debt, which honestly bothers me. I like to understand everything about businesses. So I don't know if we have enough time to try to walk yeah. this one together. But yeah, I would holding, but I'm a little cautious, man, because it's like, there's no meat on the bone. So I really want to see them continue to raise revenues on all this AI cloud stuff with ChatGPT and all that. Since, you know, they're free cash flow profitability margins like are declining and we might also see that with the cloud in the in the next five or ten years so and to watch for the next report closely okay i'm going to share my screen go for it okay I'm and that, that is it for the uh microsoft notes too so. okay i'm going to remove yours and then i will present my screen amazing we did it. Okay. Nate looks like he's in his element. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So let's take a look here. Free cash flow in the first quarter, 17.83 billion. Free cash flow last year in the first quarter was 20.05 billion. If we take a look at operating cash flow, which is before CapEx, it's 24 versus 25. So yeah, operating cash flow down a little bit, which you said. So if we go to Microsoft's price to free cash flow now, are you ready? What do you think it is? What do you think it is? Take a wild guess. But the amount of free cash flow they made in the trailing 12 months? Yep. Price to free cash flow right now. My oh, uh, I think it's 40. Wow. Yeah. It is 39.5. You know, as applied math major in college, bro, come on. That, this to me though, is just like. It's expensive. It's, I just can't get behind this. Like, I want to own Microsoft. I I truly do think it's a great business, but I cannot get behind this price ratio right here. I also was reading a statistic. I don't... Please, someone go fact check me. But I was reading that the... Like, over 90% of the S&P 500 returns year to date are from Microsoft, Apple. Like, those two stocks make up the majority of the S&P 500 returns year to date. And then I... I think it was the entire FANG group was 90%, but Microsoft and Apple, I think, were over 50%. Terrifying. So that, so yeah, that's where like a lot of the market's returns this year are coming from, is just from a handful of stocks and mainly two. And this is the result. Now you're getting Microsoft at a 40 price to free cash flow for a multi-trillion dollar business where the free cash flow dropped year over year. Like, So not, not financial advice, but... This is a show, obviously, Daniel and I are friends. So imagine us having this conversation over a beer and a campfire. Daniel, as your friend, not financial advice, I would not recommend buying Microsoft stock today because it seems very expensive. <laughs> to just kind of as we see speak around what we're talking about now. But I'm holding, I just want to be clear, great business, obviously. But yeah, it's it's expensive on a free cash flow basis. This is crazy. <laughs> this is a stock where I'm speculating because I, I can't tell you for certain how I would react if I was a holder, but Microsoft is a stock where if I bought it at a good price, I would really try not to sell it. Like I would be looking at this right now at 40 price to free cash flow. And I think I would be doing what you're doing is just holding it. Yeah. I think that's what I would try my best to do because it is. Well, all right, Mr. Swing Trader over here. Look at these diamond hands. I'll teach you how to long-term invest. 
You know, you say that, but it's funny because I do own stocks that I've had for years. This is that, yeah, messing with you. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I, I, you know, arguably deserve it, but it is what it is. Anyways, I think that Microsoft is pretty expensive right now. As an investor, looking at this price ratio right here, I would not be buying it. And the reason is because now you're getting a free cash flow yield of only 2.5% on it. That's no margin of safety there based on what I've read from Warren Buffett and the intelligent investor. So I just think it's very expensive now. I would, uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe we can queue up the next uh, earnings here. I think it was Google or Amazon, your pick. I'll take this comment in the meantime from uh, a crap. Anuj, I'm so sorry if I'm butchering your name, but Jake and Daniel, do you host these earnings summaries somewhere? Yes, if you are tuning in, tuning in this is our weekly YouTube live show. We have a Spotify show. You could look up Stock Unlock on Spotify to find all 29 or 28, soon to be 29 episodes. Also on our YouTube channel, you can watch all these recordings. We post the timestamps of the video so you could hop around them in the comments. And at least for people like me, I like to do 1.5, 2x speed sometimes. So you obviously can't do that live. And yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, Daniel, what's the next stock we're going to be looking okay. at here? This is Amazon. I've not talked about Amazon yet since uh, the earnings came out. So as I've said throughout history, Amazon, the main metric I pay attention to on Amazon is their operating cash flow. And I believe that this is the metric the market actually focuses on for the business. So I was expecting operating cash flow to start increasing, getting back near all-time highs. I think it could make an all-time high this year, actually. Sorry, Daniel, are you able to zoom in on this document a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I will. So here we go. We're going to zoom in. When I zoom in, I don't know why, but the quality just drops so much. Anyways, operating cash flow this year in the first quarter was $4.8 billion. Last year, it was negative $2.8 billion. So operating cash flow is now positive, and it is it, it increased by, I believe that's $6 billion year over year. In the trailing 12 months now, Amazon has produced $54.3 billion in operating cash flow, which is up $15 billion year over year. So they said, you know, we're going to improve our operating cash flow, get it back up. They're executing on that. One thing, though, is their CapEx expenditure is basically flat year over year. It's down a little bit, but by like 3%. So they're still spending a ton of money on CapEx, but the operations are actually quite profitable now. We don't have the most recent data from this earnings report in stock unlock yet. It takes a few days. But if we go here, you can see that Amazon's operating cash flow is starting to uptrend again. And then when we get the next quarter, this will uptrend again to 54 billion. Their all-time high was 67 billion in the first quarter of 2023. We're about 13 billion off from that now. And uh, I think that, you know, over the rest of the year, Amazon could get back to all-time high operating cash flow. And COVID messed things up. So maybe you could walk the viewers through this because the reason why they made that much operating cash flow when you look back uh, several quarters ago, arguably was from COVID. People were ordering a lot of stuff online. So as an investor, I guess it's just hard for me to grapple with. Is it fair to measure from there or say they get back to all-time highs? Because if I took my finger and drew a line as if the pandemic didn't happen, it looks like we are almost on the growth rate that your you know human brain would have filled yep. trying to connect that dot. How do you would, do that, Daniel? I would say it's still fair to compare against because Amazon has been growing its revenues on top of COVID. Like, the revenues are still at an all-time high. I mean, if the business's revenues and the business in general was declining after COVID, then yeah, I would say it's probably not totally fair to compare against that. But 
Amazon has still managed to grow on top of its COVID numbers. Like it's insane. It's a, it's an incredible business in my opinion, but yeah. Anyways, that was the good. Now we're going to get into some of the bad here. <laughs> AWS. If you take a look at these numbers right here in the fourth quarter, it generated $21.4 billion in revenue. In the first quarter of 2023, 21.3. It dropped by about $20 million. So AWS saw its revenue go down year over year. This is what freaked everyone out. And then in the conference call, the CFO of Amazon said that they're seeing the same revenue growth rate or revenue slowdown in the second quarter as of April. So that really spooked investors because Amazon was up something like 12% in after hours trading when they initially reported. And then once people saw the AWS numbers and the AWS outlook for Q2, the stock freaking tanked. Like it fell off a cliff in after hours, lost all of its gains. And then I believe it was down like one or 2% the next day. So people are not stoked with AWS numbers right now. If it's, So that was the bet. That was that was really what spooked investors this quarter. Yeah, that makes sense. I think people are always trying to find with Amazon, you know, they have cash flows and people are against they're not profitable, but that's because they're always reinvesting. And the counter argument to that is, well, they have these cloud business businesses, they're growing revenue, they could just turn on the profitability driver. So I think some of those theses start to get thrown up in the air a bit when you see the lack of growth. And investors might be asking themselves, hey, like if this actually doesn't grow, are they going to be able to turn on the profitability drivers? Like, is this still a big growth company or are they going to go into cash flow mode? That's a, I heard that on the All In podcast, which actually really resonated with me. Like there was a huge growth period for the last couple of decades of big tech. In theory, you can't grow forever. And what we've seen with huge businesses in the past and other industries is, you know, with oil, they grow, get big growth period, and then they become cash cows where they throw off lots of free cash flow, give cash back to shareholders. So it is interesting to see, not to overgeneralize all these tech stocks, but are you potentially kind of changing how we view these? Are these still growth stocks or yeah, they just, do they only be focusing on efficiency? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, nothing can grow forever. But the thing is, it all depends on the price you pay, right? Like Google, I think, was selling for 17 times free cash flow when it was selling for $80 a share. In my opinion, that means that the company is not priced for a lot of growth. Whereas if you take Microsoft at a 40 price to free cash flow, that company is priced for a lot of freaking growth. And it's the, it's the biggest company out of the group we're talking about right now. So it all depends on the price you pay. Like if Microsoft was selling for a 10 price to free cash flow today, I'd be, it'd be half my portfolio probably. But damn. <laughs> you, you, Maybe. Side, side plot. You would put half of your portfolio on one stock, or am I just taking that a little too far? I think I'm I'm probably over exaggerating. You know, I like to say these things when I'm not in the moment. But if you know Microsoft actually dropped to a ten price to free cash flow, I don't know what my emotions would be. So it's hard to predict the future like that. <laughs> you want to know what I just imagined? I'd imagine Microsoft drops to price to free cash flow ten. I find you and your girlfriend living in a tent on the side of the road because you yeah. sold your house, you sold everything you had. You went all in on the stock. You're like, I will live in a tent because I want to put all of my money into the 10 price to free cash flow growing Microsoft. Honestly, dude, let's share a tent because we'd actually save even more money then. <laughs> and I'll get rid of our apartment too, whatever. Yeah, I'll sell the house. No, but um. anyways, that was the thing that people didn't like about Amazon's report. However, take a look at this, okay? 
Amazon has multiple different biz sorry business segments. Their physical stores, or sorry, online stores only grew 3% year over year. People didn't love that. Physical stores are growing by 7%. However, third-party seller services grew 20% year over year. And this is a bigger business than AWS. Can you define that for us in the chat? What What is that? Third-party seller services. Um, I actually don't know how to generalize this quickly. I think that uh, I can take a step. I think that that is for the third-party sellers on Amazon that are coming, where it's like not a direct Amazon Prime product. Yeah, I want to... Anyone in the chat wants to chime in here, uh, help us out too. We love interacting with you all. Also see all these chats and thank you everyone for being here. I know what it is, but I don't know how to explain it well. So I'm going to Google it. Third-party sellers are independent sellers who offer a variety of new used and refurbished items. Yeah. The fact of the chat in that one. Also, we're getting a couple chats that the screenshot is a little bit blurry. Yeah, I know. We'll work on these. I will, Daniel, I think I can give you some file types for next stream that will scale better. Yeah, these but... are kind of trash. Anyways, advertising. <laughs> Subscription services also increased by 17%. Advertising services increased by 23%. And these are, these are businesses doing $10 billion a quarter now. So I think that people are focusing a little bit too much, at least in my opinion, on just AWS. Because Amazon is spawning some incredible businesses here at scale that are still growing by nearly 20% per year consistently. So I don't think that this is just an AWS story here. I think Amazon is a lot more than AWS. They did a good job at explaining that too. For anyone that wants to go pull up their Amazon earnings release, always recommend people to type in the names of the stops you want to look at and then type in the word investor relations. That's obviously how you find all their investor materials and they daniel have bullet after bullet after bullet after bullet both for hey here's all the huge companies that are integrating with our cloud and continuing to get entrenched in our b2b model there they also then in a completely separate section talk about all their product innovations and it brings credit exactly to what you're saying and i have to agree i'm not excited about the cloud growth i'm not trying to spin a story that's a good thing but it is still a slice of their business as you mentioned yep. and there are lots of other parts of this business that are growing we should have mentioned this to begin with. I actually have an Amazon shareholder. I think you are as well, Daniel? Yes, I am. And I was uh, buying more Amazon over the past six months when it was down quite a bit. Yeah, my it's not a huge, huge position for me, but I do have a handful of shares. I think my average is around 90 or 91. Definitely still dealing with that investor imposter syndrome we talked about last stream, Daniel, where I'm still having trouble buying stocks that are above my average price. But anyways, we can go back to episode 28 for the riff on that. Anyways, what, yep. did you want to bring up anything else here for Amazon? It looks like we got their cash flow statement up in stock unlock. By far the yep. best place to analyze stock financials. So if you're listening to the stream, head out to stockunlock.com. We are the founders of this website and we love your support. Definitely the best place to check out stocks. Advertisement over. Back to Daniel. Yeah, so if we... Uh... I believe Amazon is trading for a price to operating cash flow of 20. Well, actually, it came down. So I believe it's about 21 or 20 today. And if we take a look at their price to operating cash flow throughout history. So we don't have the new data in stock unlock yet. So this number is actually a little bit lower. I believe it's around 20 to 21 now. And if we take a look at Amazon's history, the average has been 28.6. And usually every time the stock gets down to a price to operating cash flow of about 20, that tends to be where the market is bottoming it out. So that's around the cheapest the stock likes to get. Over here, 
in January of 2023, it got down to 18.8. I thought that the stock was very cheap back then. I still think that Amazon is arguably on the cheaper end today relative to how the market has valued it historically. So that's kind of my thoughts on Amazon after earnings. There was something still like AWS was really the sticky point for investors, but uh, I, I personally think the company is more than AWS. One thing I did too, Daniel, when I looked at all these companies uh, operating cash flows being slightly down from relative to four quarters ago is I know we are debatably in a recession, technically not technically are, depends who you ask. I went back to the 2008 period and looked at all these tech companies just to see what their income statement numbers were doing and things like that. And this is not the first time that numbers have went a little bit sideways, basically. You know, there's a growth period for whatever reason in the macro economy or things happening at like technological scale, new products, they'll grow. Then there always seems to be some event that affects all companies, some stagnation, and not that all companies then regrow from that. But when you obviously have a great company with great employees, great product, yada, 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 you will then see the growth pick back up. So not that we have a crystal ball to look into the future, but I would I would urge investors, not financial advice, not get too terrified if there's ever like a quarter that's flat or two. And at least for us here, Daniel, trying to be as long-term investors as we can, really look at who's running this company, the potential growth. And there still is a lot here. Like you said with Microsoft, I actually agree with the street on this. I think out of all the tech companies, they are showing the biggest promise to keep growing because they're killing B2B and B2C now and are entrenched across all tech. So we might look back at this video two or three years ago and say, hey, actually, in hindsight, 40 price to free cash flow wasn't a bad price to pay for Microsoft because they freaking 2X'd it and literally became the leader of global AI. Obviously, I'm riffing. I'm not predicting that, but I don't think it's a non-zero chance. So, Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, we'll see. The market is the the future, right? That's that'll make us really good investors. What will this stock price be in 2028? Ah, okay, cool. All I know is the market is currently pricing Microsoft the highest by far. So investors are clearly the most optimistic on that business and uh, its growth in the future. But I don't know. This morning, I know that they invested in OpenAI. I think the valuation was 10 billion. It seems that more VCs, I don't know why they need more money, are pouring in money now at a 27 or $29 billion evaluation. I'll have to fact check that, but I read that in my morning brew email this morning. So things keep on moving for them, both on paper gains as well as executing our product. Yep. Anyways, what, what are we looking at here? Looks like we got Google's earnings now. So for those of you watching, we have already went through Meta earnings. We went through Microsoft earnings as well as Amazon. So we're bringing you our fourth earnings report, and this is now Google. Yeah, so Google's business actually did grow year... Actually, sorry, Google advertising as a group declined slightly year over year. YouTube actually saw quite a significant revenue decline, almost 10% year over year. I was expecting this. As I said on my main channel, um, as a YouTuber, like my videos are just not making as much money anymore. Actually down quite significantly. We're rough so, percentage there. Like You're talking like 50% decline, like 30 to 40 30? 30 to 40%. Okay, so every dollar per view you were making a year or two ago, you're now getting around 65, 70 cents. Yes, that's right. That's correct. Ah, good to know. And th th this kind of stinks for me because one of the things I love about Google the most, honestly, is YouTube. I think YouTube is a sleeping giant. I, yeah. I'll be honest with you. I expected it to like maybe be flat, Daniel, but I wanted the growth of advertisers still coming to balance out the fact that advertisers are definitely spending less across ads in general. But... Yeah, I didn't like to see this. 
Yeah, it's it's really making me realize that uh, YouTube kind of seems like more of a cyclical business. Like when times are good, YouTube grows quick. But when times are not so good, it seems like advertisers don't like to spend as much on YouTube. But overall, Google advertising was basically flat year over year. It did drop a little bit, but um, not very much at all. Google other did grow. So Google services total did actually grow by about 500 million year over year. And then Google Cloud grew by, I believe that was 28% year over year to 7.4 billion. So Google Cloud is still growing strong. Advertising business is kind of seeing a slowdown. And then their other business was growing pretty strong. So those were kind of the takeaways there. This was the main takeaway. This is what investors really liked is that Google Cloud had its first positive operating income quarter. So essentially what this means now is Google Cloud's growth is now going to start adding to Google's overall operating income. So it's no longer going to be a weight on the company's profitability, but actually start contributing to the company's profitability, which ultimately means that Google's profits should start growing quite a bit going forward. Did, manage, did management say that this will keep going up? Like that's the expectation here. I know it was profitable this quarter, but why wouldn't it flip flop a bit? You're just saying that there's confidence for management that there's a steady trend upward here. Yeah, I actually don't know what their comments were on that, but I don't have the screenshot. But I saw a chart where it basically was like, if you take a look at Google Cloud's operating income every quarter, it's been getting closer and closer to profitability. And like now it's finally flipped. But yeah, I would uh, I would be interested to see what management's comments were. But we're going to move on to the cash flow statement now. So this is 2023 on the right side for Google. You can actually see that their net operating cash flow declined by about 1.6 billion year over year. So this is the same story as Meta, right? Didn't love to see that. It's not the end of the world, but again, did not love to see that. However, their CapEx spend declined by 3.5 billion. So their CapEx dropped significantly and it dropped much more rapidly than the operating cash flow. So even though cash from operating activities was down, Google's free cash flow was up year over year. And this is this is what the company did in uh, 2008 as well. So whenever Google starts going through a slowdown in the economy and their revenues start topping a little bit, what they do is they focus back on efficiency and then they can actually increase their profits while the company is not growing revenues. And this was a free cash flow increase of about 15% year over year, I believe. So it wasn't a it was, sorry, it was a significant increase in cash flow. If we go to quarterly, company produced $17.2 billion in free cash flow this quarter. Last year, it was $15.3 billion. So you can see the free cash flow actually increased, even though revenue, I believe revenue increased by like 6%. My memory is not serving me well here. But you can also see that in the trailing 12 months, their free cash flow is now starting to go back up, even through the macro times we're in. Yeah, I mean, they're doing the big efficiency push right like my, my whole theme on google when i looked at the report was revenues and things slightly up you know one of those a bit like sideways reports from like a year ago but definitely like improved margins things like that actually if we went over to the metrics i think we could see like we see the revenues like a little flap and then the gross margin goes up uh, i do think that they still incurred around like 2.1 billion of impairment charges or however they were wording it from all the layoffs they did and I did some weird math on this. I don't have it again, but I do think that they paid by far the most per separate yeah, employee. Did. If you do the math on like the quoted number they had to spend to separate employees divided by the number of employees let go, 
another metric I don't see people talking about a lot, but an interesting one to analyze for layoff. Yeah, but um, this is it's just such a good comparison between Google and Meta because both companies said, you know, we're going to be focusing on efficiency this year, getting our mar- I'm sorry, getting our margins back up. Take a look at Meta's first quarter. That didn't happen. All their margins are down across the board. Free cash flow, operating cash flow, operating income, net income. Everything is still down year over year. And then you look at Google and their margins are starting to come back. But their free cash flow margin is starting to increase again. And they actually increased free cash flow year over year despite um, despite operating cash flow going down. So when I took a look at those two earnings reports, I saw Google actually executing better in my opinion. The things are moving in the right direction. And the company is trading for a cheaper price than Meta now. Well, we were saying that. I'm very open about this. Like, I was buying Google pretty heavily at $90 a share. I think they were trading for about a 16 or 17. I might be confusing. I think it was price to free cash flow. I might be confusing that with price to operating cash flow. But yeah, even at these prices, it still seems decent. One thing we haven't brought up yet, Daniel, is they authorized a $70 billion, with a B dollar share buyback program. No, that does not mean that they will actually spend all of that. But if this company buys back $70 billion worth of shares, that is very wild high to me. And actually goes a little bit to the argument I was trying to make before, where are these cash cow shareholder friendly businesses where they keep the stock price up by buying back shares, all that stuff, as opposed to you know using $70 billion to continue to invest in growth because it actually seems like they're trimming employees getting hyper focused and even combining teams they combine deep mind teams well, with someone else internally interesting well, to see yeah i i don't mind the buybacks right now because i personally think the stock is cheap so while it's cheap i mean buy back as many shares as they can and i'm happy for that sure. i mean over the past year they bought back four percent if they do another 70 billion dollar buyback that's another four to five percent so they're returning quite a bit of cash to shareholders right now which i like to see but right here, we have Google and Meta's price to free cash flows. So we can see down here, Meta got down to a price to free cash flow of 9.7. And this is when it was like too cheap to ignore. As I said, that's when, you know, I was dollar cost averaging, continuing to buy it because it was just such a value stock. Google at the time had a price to free cash flow of 17, which I believe is what you said when you were going heavy in it at 90, which by the way, yeah, that was really good time to buy it looks like but now you can see meta's price to free cash flow is now up to 32 google's is now up to 22 so now google is arguably the cheaper stock after meta's ran so much and the the free cash flow continues going down friendly debate here i think i'm pulling up a debate from maybe 10 ish episodes ago let's talk about that time when google was at 16 and meta was at nine so sure technically mathematically you can't argue against if you're just valuing them, pure math, blah, 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 sure, 9 is less than 16. But my argument here is taking future growth into account and what both of these companies were doing, I still thought Google was a much better buy than Meta. I, w- I ended up being wrong if you look at the stock appreciation, by the way. Like, that was not the right call because <laughs> Meta ended up laying off employees at 2x. So I'm not trying to say I was right here, but that was the mindset I had at the time. I was like, even though this has a 16 uh, multiple... I still saw Google executing and producing a ton more cash flow where I actually saw Meta in my head, I thought it would decline. So sure, it's trading on a nine, but that would turn into an 18 if the metric they're evaluating on reduces by half over the next year, right? So it looked like investors were 
counting on that to happen, but credit to you, Daniel. I mean, you, you saw through the smoke and mirrors on that. It was just too cheap. And all the people that made that trade made a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. If you're, if you're thinking over the next 10 or 20 years, I would agree that Google was the better buy. Well, it's not long-term investing <laughs> versus swing trading, bro. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever. I appreciate sure. you letting me mess with you a bit there. Just to be super clear for the viewers, Daniel and I are very close friends. If you think we are ever arguing or things like that, it is all in good fun. And there was one time where I think we rustled some feathers, but please be aware. Uh, we know each other very well. So it's always in good, good faith here. <laughs> What would that be? Would that be price to free cash flow on cost? Do we have that? Uh, I think free cash flow yield. Type in yield. Price to free cash flow on cost right here. So let's let's actually go take a look at what you're saying. So meta, well, let's just do this. Free cash or price to free cash flow. All right. So you were saying that meta here, this is exactly what you were saying, by the way. So meta at that point was a 9.7 price to free cash flow but you were saying if the company's free cash flow declines in the future then your price to free cash flow on cost of those shares would actually go up and do you mind explaining that just for the viewers quick because i think this is one of the more complicated metrics to understand um this is a, this is a hard one to explain so what this metric is doing is taking a look at your price to free cash flow of the shares you purchased based on the company's free cash flow today so since meta's free cash flow actually did end up declining the price to free cash flow of shares purchased on november 2nd right there has increased to 13.4 so the price to free cash flow isn't actually the 9.7 you purchased it at it's 13.4 now because the company's free cash flow went down i think that's a good way to explain it so, some buzzwords that help me out here too because i will admit when i started investing it took me a while to understand this stuff is like you're basically projecting right you're saying, I'm still taking into account that point back in time, projecting out what the cash flows used to be in the future. Did your investment thesis stay true? So, like, if you bought the twenty multiple a year ago, what does that? How does that relate to like their current financials? Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, sweet. Anyways, that, thank you for the little break there. We actually got Red Camaro here saying thanks for explaining. And yeah, we love seeing you guys in the chat. Let us know how we're doing. And sorry, Daryl, sending it back to you here. This is a beautiful graph. I'm just saying that what you said played out. It wasn't quite as dramatic as you said, but uh, you know, the company's cash flow did decline, so the price ratio actually did increase. Yeah, so it makes the sixteen, the sixteen to nine we were looking at the uh, in the other graph. When you now fast forward through time, look a little bit closer to what you said. What I was saying, where like if a company grows their cash flows more, obviously it makes the sixteen look better than the nine they felt. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean that's I love investing so much. That's big tech earnings. I think uh, I think we covered all four that we wanted to cover. Uh, got a good question here from Rick Camaro, Daniel. Let me know if you want to take this or me. When should one use price to free cash flow and price to operating cash flow? Um, I made a very in-depth video on our Stock Unlock channel that goes over this. Awesome. How in very good depth? I'll try to find that and post the post the link. Yeah, it basically explains when to use which price ratios on every stock. Awesome. And yeah, we'd love to see comments in the chat. Usually at the end of the show, we love to take stock suggestions live, do some live analysis. We also love looking at stocks for the first time. Also, Jake, I was I was actually just thinking about this. So I think that Google actually reports its YouTube 
what is that YouTube premium? I believe they call it. Um, I believe they report their YouTube premium revenue in their other segment, not actually in their YouTube segment. I might be wrong on that, but I, I remember reading that somewhere. So if YouTube revenues are going down, it could actually be because more people are subscribing to YouTube premium. Oh my God. That's so weird. Yeah. Cause they don't see ads. Yep. So it's, that so could also be why their other business, that could also be why their other business grew so much. If people are switching over to YouTube premium, could be something to look into. Interesting. Also, if anyone wants to be a hero, uh, I need to pay attention to this stream. I just went to look for that video quick about when to use price to operating cash flow versus free cash flow in the one minute. I didn't see it pop up, but if anyone has the link and wants to be a superhero, post in the chat. <laughs> you want to take okay. one of these, Daniel? <coughs> um... Um, let me see. We got a question about banks here. If, yeah. uh, Sorry, while, while you're looking, I see we got 79 people in here. Uh, if you are liking the show, please throw us a thumbs up. Hit that bell icon to get notified when we go live. We are always trying to grow stock and lock and obviously reach more people. We have a ton of fun with these. And thank you so much for being here. If you're listening on Spotify, asynchronously, come check us out on YouTube sometime at Stock and Lock. Yeah. Okay. All right. This one, um, Jake, what are your thoughts on coin coinbase? I actually made a comment about the CEO where I've been embarrassingly forgetting the, the guy's name. So coinbase, for those of you who don't know, is one of the only completely quote, like legal crypto exchanges. Obviously you have heard of FTX and all the other sketchy things. We're not here to replay the whole crypto saga, but coin or coinbase specifically stock trade on US exchanges where consumers can go buy, sell crypto. I also think that they are opening up doors to allow institutions to get in. I personally don't believe in crypto. I am not well versed on this. I love the technology, but for me, Coinbase IPO'd when people were buying and selling coins like crazy. There's also been a lot of regulatory scrutiny around them. The most interesting conversation here, Daniel, on this stock, I think is less about the financials and more about the company itself. The CEO actually made a statement that they are looking into incorporating elsewhere since they are done dealing with US federal agencies, asking them for advice on crypto, asking them for guidelines. And now I think that they actually got a letter. I don't know if it was the SEC or another organization, I'm blanking on it, but that uh, one of the US federal agencies was planning on suing Coinbase. And this is after Coinbase complied with all of their standards. So. This is a very interesting stock. I honestly wouldn't touch it, not financial advice. It's just, I, it's hard for me to value. I don't know if they will continue to be incorporated in the US or what that means, like what regulatory scrutiny is coming. Also, the CEO is a powerhouse. This person is not someone to bet, bet against. So it's a confusing one for me personally. I'm not sure if you're in that boat as well, Daniel. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's not a stock I would own personally. I just took a look at their financials as well, and it's like, Maybe, maybe we can screen share that, show a little bit of it on Stock Unlock. Bring them up too. Um, yeah, so... Do you own any crypto, Daniel? No, never have. Do you actually know that I do technically have a little bit of crypto because I actually took Coinbase, speaking of the devil, Coinbase had one of the best Super Bowl commercials where they gave away $15 of free Bitcoin 
which I did. I made a Coinbase account. I got the $15 of free Bitcoin. I think it's worth about eight bucks right now. So I'm basically rich and ready to leave the confinements of the fiat money system, as the crypto bros would say. So see you later, later loser, boomer. <laughs> Make it easy. Enjoy your paper monopoly money. Thank you. Go have fun with your, uh, go, go buy some groceries with your crypto. <laughs> Let me know how it goes. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, this is Coinbase's trailing 12 months revenue, $9.64 billion in 2021. It's dropped all the way down to 3.19. So revenue has dropped like 70%. That's terrible. I... That is absolutely awful. And you can the see that their score is also terrible. Yeah, you can also see that their expenses have not dropped. So revenue has dropped. Expenses are still up. So this company is actually not even making money anymore, it looks like. This is the same thing with their operating cash flow. It's now down to negative 1.6 billion. So this company, yeah, it's, it's not even making money anymore. So we say this all the time. Businesses are not raffle tickets. Like there's a business behind there. So when you look behind the curtain at Coinbase, they're giving consumers access to crypto as well as institutions. What has happened to crypto in the last year or two is cratered. We see that here. It looks like analysts are the only people that actually like this. And when you look at the stock unlock insight score, it is very important to understand that you could have two stocks that are rated a three, but the makeup of those scores are different. So if we scroll up to the top here, Daniel, how many very bads are there? Because that has taken up over half the pie chart. Yeah, there's 16. And a lot of the very goods are coming from the analyst section. And for me, I'm a little bit skeptical of analysts personally. And it doesn't seem like there are some positives in the financial health, but overall not growing, not profitable, not getting returns on capital invested and impending regulatory scrutiny. Yeah, maybe crypto will be revived again. And, you know, people will point and laugh at us for making this video, but it is really hard for me to come up with a full thesis for this stock, especially when it's trading still at a $12 billion valuation. I mean, that is. Yeah, I, I am not as optimistic that we're going to see another crypto hype wave because like this time around, I think that this was the big crypto bubble that we saw. I mean, everyone was getting into crypto and i mean like every single person i knew was either talking about crypto getting into it or trying to avoid it like everyone had an opinion on it so i mean it got to the point where my mother's financial advisor was asking her or trying to get her into bitcoin and i was just like this is insane dude um wow. yeah dude it was insane but wow. so now that pretty much everyone has either been in crypto or had the opinion on crypto and it's dropped so significantly, I think the majority of the population would not touch it again. Like it's done. I think, I think I would speculate that we're not going to see a bubble like that in crypto again. Fair enough. Well, there you have it. Daniel and I, uh, we've made our opinions on crypto clear. Maybe we will be wrong, but now, you know, um, there's a great question here, actually, Daniel. And I think it would be great for us to talk about because you and I just totally disagree on this. And I put on my tinfoil hat. So. G-Man here says, it looked like you and Daniel were almost going to answer my question. Got, got you now. Uh, lol. Anyway, as investors, I think it always makes sense to find value in stocks that are out of favor. For example, banks. What do you think? So for those of you who aren't following, debatable bank crisis going on now. We all know what happened with SBB. Uh, you go to the past episode to get your thoughts on that. Right now, First Republic Bank is rumored to be getting taken over by regulators right now. Uh, they were not... They might not be saved in the same way as SVB, but the question here is, 
when people are running away from banks, does that make them very investable? What do you guys think of banks? Daniel, I'll just say my tinfoil hat 30 second opinion here. And I think you actually can talk a lot more intelligently about this. So putting on my tinfoil hat, by the way, I feel the same way about utility companies and banks. I don't invest in them. I don't like the bank business. I don't see any moat for banks. I think they all offer very similar products. You have very big banks that kind of fully and dominate everywhere is a highly regulated industry. I think there are actually lots of macro issues going on with governments printing money, availability of just fiat currency in general. Uh, I am bullish on fiat and I think we'll still live with the USD, just my opinion. But banks as an investment, it's hard for me to analyze them. I can't sleep well at night owning them because I barely understand how they work. It gets complicated. So I plead the fifth. I don't touch them. Daniel, you feel very differently. So maybe you could take some time to walk through why you do feel comfortable with banks and then tell me how stupid I am for saying these things. <laughs> I would say I don't feel comfortable with banks as a whole. I would say I feel comfortable with the well-run, large, financially sound banks. I don't think that every bank in the banking sector is good, clearly. As you can see, a lot of them just go to zero. Um, it really just depends how the bank is managing its finances and its risk. And I think some banks do that really well. And I think some banks do that really poorly. What are the some things you look at there? So there's two segments, good banks, bad banks. I think you explained that well. What are like some of the metrics investors could look at to start to assess this? Because me as an investor, I'm saying it is very hard for me to determine that. I think banks are Yeah, there's one metric that's specific to the banking sector. It's called the CET1 ratio, which is essentially how liquid the bank is. So SVB, for example, I believe its CET1 ratio when it went under was 4 to 7%, which is not high. In Canada, I believe we have a minimum of around 11 to 12%. That's how much liquidity the banks have to carry to meet deposits and stay financially liquid. Um, and that's why I like Canadian banks because we, we, our banks are regulated a lot more strictly. And I believe that no Canadian bank even went under in 2008 when the big crisis was going on. What are you trying to say about U.S. banks, sir? I'm an American citizen. I'm saying your guys' banking system is not nearly as strong as Canada, and that's been proven over time. <laughs> See, this is where like, I'm, I just put my hands up here because I'm like, I don't know enough about this to actually argue against you. Uh, I did actually see the Fed make a statement, U.S. Fed, that they like took responsibility for being like, hey, they didn't say it this way. I'll rephrase it. We effed up. They're like, we totally effed up the SVB situation. But also, like, they were also super bad. Uh, of course, they're not talking about how they lobbied the government to change regulations around banks. But well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't even the Fed. It wasn't even the well, Fed. That's supposed to be, or, no, they're supposed to be regulating and watching these banks, right? So in theory, yeah. if the system was working well, SVB should not have happened because the Fed would have been on top of this. I see. Put regulations in place that would have prevented this from happening. I see. Okay, I agree with that. What what I meant to say is it wasn't the Fed's fault that SV, SVB went under. They totally mismanaged their capital and uh, made some pretty poor assumptions, which just caused them to downright collapse. Um. That's not the same, though, across the banking sector. So when there's an event that happens and it tanks an entire sector like the banking sector, I think that you can buy some fundamentally sound banks for very cheap prices, TD Bank, to answer G-Man's question. I thought it was cheap. I bought more of it when it was under $80 a share Canadian. And yeah, I just I just think that there's good banks and there's bad banks. To answer some questions here, where do they publish the CET1 ratios? You have to go to the bank's 
um, earnings releases, they should report this. They should make it clear what it is. If they don't, that's a red flag. And this is not a metric on stock on a lock because it's pretty specifically calculated by the bank. Um, but yeah, definitely go and take a look at the CET1 ratios. For example, TD Bank, I believe its CET1 ratio was 18%, which was the highest I've seen in any big bank, which means TD is incredibly liquid. They're not at any risk of going under, in my opinion. And the market was just selling it off so much. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is one of the best banks in the world, in my opinion. Second largest Canadian bank, growing quick. And the market's just like, nope, it's uninvestable now. Here's another question for you. This is out of my own curiosity, maybe for some of the viewers in the chat. When the banks take in deposits, obviously they lend it out, they invest in other things. So when you're looking at these banks, Daniel, how deep do you go on the investments they have? Because I know, I'm being very general, by the way. Yep. But I am, I believe banks invest in debt vehicles. They invest in government treasuries, bond, you know, like they put their money around, Yep. which they should be doing. So when an investor decides to buy TD, for example, do you think it would be foolish for an investor not to be fully aware of what happens there. That's basically what keeps me out because I've tried to look at banks and I'm like, not only are these so boring to me, but I'm like, it, boring. I just can't wrap my head around it. I'm like, I don't know how to visualize and understand all the macro things pulling on like the real estate business and like looking at what debt they have and what properties they're around. Right. So is that something where you just kind of trust the bank's reporting where like you kind of look at their high level? It's like, look, I trust management. I don't need to look at their 10,000 investments. That's ridiculous. Or is it actually that you should look at all these? It's a mix. It's a mix. So for like TD Bank, for example, I look at the general, the generalization of like, what are, what are their assets? What, what are they invested in? And then I want to at least understand how much exposure they have to what, but I don't look at every single, you know, loan they make or anything like that. So yes, there is a point where when you're investing in a bank, you do just kind of have to trust the institution, trust the management, trust the track record, and just really trust its liquidity. That's again, why I feel so comfortable with Canadian banks is because they've stood the test of time, even when times have been as bad as they can get, in my opinion. And they're just really solid banks. Like our Canadian banking system is, is very highly regulated and very sound in my opinion. Right. Yeah, are you still below shot uh, EQB? Yeah, heck yeah, I am, dude. Are you That's kidding? a little bank, right? So now you, I guess you own EQB and TD, correct? I own EQ Bank, TD Bank, National Bank, Royal Bank of Canada. Um, but so why why not just yeah. pick, why not just pick one? Or when you're like doing portfolio weighting allocations, are you just looking at all the stock prices and when the ratio is on each one of the lowest, you're like, I'll just go into that one and I like the basket at some risk hedging potentially to have multiple. I, so EQ bank for me is like a growth investment. Um, it's actually the one that I also feel will give the most returns over the long term. So full disclosure, I have the largest position in EQ bank. Then in my RRSP, which is my retirement account, I don't like to take as much risk and I like to just feel secure with that portfolio. So that one has Royal Bank of Canada, National Bank and TD Bank, all about equal weightings. It also does have some EQB, but not as large of a position. Is it safe to assume those all pay a dividend too? So you're saving on tax? In yeah, account? those are... Yeah, I, I do the same in... I know you're in Canada, I'm in the US, but we have the Roth IRA. So I've been doing that with the NSA shares as well. So I, yeah. I like that. So there's the growth bank stocks that are, I guess, slightly more risky, but you think or are speculating get the greatest returns. 
But you probably could have guessed I would have asked, well, why don't you just put all your money in that? I think you explained it pretty well. There is more safety in some other banks that just might be like a little bit bigger, less for growth. Yeah. Like give you a nice dividend payment. You can save on tax and the tax deferred accounts. All right. Yeah, like, I, I see you. I don't agree with you, but I was like, it makes sense logically to me. So. Yeah. Like I just, I just, if Royal Bank of Canada goes under, man, we got some problems. <laughs> like we have serious problems in the world. And as we like to say, if that happens, then money is probably not going to matter at that point. Uh, I'm not going to worry about your money. <laughs> so. Forgive me for this. There's a couple of people who are in our Discord that have made some pretty funny memes of Daniel. Also, maybe uh, throw me under the bus too, not to just pick on you here. But I think that we just had a great meme. The face you made when you said, what if Royal Bank of Canada goes under? Put fear in my body. And I think that's very <laughs> memeable. I think we used to, I think we have a problem or something. So if anyone wants to drop yeah. it in the Discord, our own have, topic channel. We have a comment here. Why not BMO, which has a CET1 ratio of 18.2%. So there's an argument that BMO is a good Canadian bank. They're one of the largest. They're probably solid, to be honest. But the reason I don't own BMO is a couple of reasons. One, if you look at their balance sheet and what they own, actually, they're not a consumer bank. They're more government and business. I believe that the majority of their portfolio is actually government and business. And that's not, you know, that could be a good or a bad thing, whatever your opinion is there. Why it's a bad thing for me is because I was a BMO customer for years when I was growing up, and I thought that they were not a nice word. <laughs> I thought that they were a pretty poor business. I did not like them. And then I actually got my mortgage through BMO, the house I'm currently living in. Um, the mortgage is with BMO, and it was an awful experience. They, I forget what happened, because this was like four years ago. I don't know the story. Just out at your memory completely. Yeah, it like... Basically, I made an offer on this house and then I was waiting on documents from the bank to finalize the offer and make the offer legit. And there was other offers coming in on this house. I had to get the offer in by midnight on the day that I made it. And BMO was dragging their feet and it ended up being at the point where I was like contacting other mortgage brokers, trying to just get the documents I needed sorted out. And, um... It ended up being that BMO sent me the documents at like 11.30 at night, and then I had to stay up and I was stressed out, and we got the offer in and it went through, but they had no excuse. Their excuse was just like, we don't have one. We're just like not prioritizing you as a client. And in my opinion, that's because the majority of their business comes from government and business. It doesn't come from people like me, consumers, regular everyday people. So I don't think that they care about us, which gave me a real, well, no, they don't care about us as much. So it gave me a really bad taste of BMO's business. And because of that, I would not own the stock. I had a very bad experience with them. So I'm not confident in uh, that bank beating out a bank like TD, which I think is much more friendly to consumers. And I haven't had a problem with. Uh, super fair. I behave the same way with like PayPal, for example, like where if I had a bad consumer experience with the company, yeah. even if I think they might be okay on paper, I'm not going to go with them. However, though, let me, let me poke a fun hole in that. Well, that does make sense. I think it's a good justification for you not owning the stock as a consumer. I do think you did argue for BMO a little bit there, where you we started by saying they don't deal with consumers too much. Most of their business comes from these other customers. Yeah. I don't agree that they gave you a bad experience, but it does seem like they have their eggs in a row where they are paying attention to the things that are giving them money. So, sure, not a great consumer business, 
But if you're investing in it because they capitalize and do well on that other type of mortgage lending and things like that, maybe that is actually a good thing. Like they prove to you that they do actually have their eye on the ball. Like why would they give you attention from a finite source? Cause they don't have unlimited. They look at their bank accounts. They're like, we understand what drives profits for our shareholders. And we're going to do the bigger deals before we deal with, you know, cute little single Daniel Prague buying his house, which is probably not even a fraction of a percent of what they are getting from other deals. Anyways. No, no, that, that, that was interesting. No, that's a fair argument. And as I said, that it could be the right call for the bank, but it probably is. But in terms of holding that stock and feeling comfortable after my experience with them, I just don't. I don't like the bank. I think that it's a bad bank after my experience. So I'm like, I don't want to hold its stock. <laughs> I mean, fair. <laughs> and I did just check the time. So we have been live for about an hour and 16 minutes. Normally we do about an hour. Sometimes we go over. Daniel, I'm not sure what your plans are up there in Canada. It looks like a beautiful day. I can't say it's rainy here in New York. So I'm feeling a little bit more cuddled up than usual on the live stream, but what are you thinking of a wine down here? You want to take any more comments? What What are the vibe up, uh, up there in Canada? Um, I feel like I could do a few more. Let's let it rip, bud. Friggin' out for a rip. <laughs> if anyone knows the YouTube video that we are referencing, by the way, we all immediately just became best friends. If you don't, we are doing some inside jokes. Okay. Uh, looks like a lot of the recent comments are about banks. Um, got a comment here. Thoughts on BN versus BAM, or weekly BN and BAM comment. Your question. Here we go. Thoughts on them. Um, I still like them. I was actually reading a interview with Bruce Flat last night, who is the CEO of Brookfield, and he was talking about the banking crisis. I believe it was an interview when he was over in India, and basically he was like, the current environment that we're in with higher interest rates and with stock selling off and everything, he's actually more optimistic about the investing environment now than he was a couple of years ago when everything was expensive. And he full on said in the interview that that's not a view that goes with the consensus right now. A lot of people think that investing right now is harder and not as good. But theoretically, you know, when interest rates go up, you're actually going to make more money in the future because you're getting a higher return on almost well, basically every single investment. So he's more optimistic, he thinks that Brookfield is going to actually produce more returns in the future because of that and how much money they invest. And he was also saying that basically exactly what I said earlier on in the video, where when you have a bank like SVB and these other banks collapse and it creates fear in the market and people are selling things because they're just scared, I mean, you get better deals and there's better investments out there. So he, he basically said he's optimistic when the rest of everyone or when the majority of investors are scared. Um, Brookfield actually tends to do better. So we're going to see. Brookfield's stock has not been doing well. I'm very surprised by that. They report here pretty soon. And also, Brookfield had some properties go under. I was I, That's the thing I wanted to bring up. Yeah. They, I used the same... I'm not going to re-riff on it. Yeah. For those of you who have been watching, I went through why I don't invest in banks. It was largely around just their hard to understand. I kind of applied the same mindset to Brookfield a bit. You know, like I looked at them, you know, one of my best friends, Daniel, he's like super bullish on the stocks. So I was like, all right, like I, we're going to learn about this one. And like, I don't think it's a good or bad stock. I'm just kind of like on the sidelines of, I am cheering you on. Like I was not at all. 
to understand that does this, but you do. So yes, they defaulted on some properties. Apparently yeah. it's not a bad thing, but maybe you could like walk us through. We see the media headline come through. Daniel Prompt's talking about the stock on YouTube. The next day they default on a property <laughs> and everyone's like, oh my God, what is happening? Walk us through what happened. Yeah, it's a... Uh... That was a funny time. So I made a I made a full video on Brookfield and I was like, I think this is the best stock in the market right now. I think it's the most undervalued stock with the best future opportunity. And then the next day a headline comes out, Brookfield just defaulted on $106 million of real estate. And I was like, well, that doesn't look good. But <laughs> but when you when you but when you look into the numbers, I mean Brookfield has a $33 billion um real estate portfolio. So $160 million defaulting is what it's less than half a percent of their portfolio. And Brookfield has said that their commercial real estate portfolio is 95% very high quality office real estate, which actually is seeing an increase in demand right now. And their, their net revenue per property is actually increasing because of how high quality it is and how people want that high quality office space. However, they do have a 5% of their portfolio that's not that good, and they're actually trying to get rid of. That is the portfolio that is seeing defaults right now. And how Brookfield does this is they have, they probably have like thousands of little subsidiaries underneath the company. So this little subsidiary may own an office portfolio of 10, 10 buildings or something like that. I'm just using a generalization, but let's say that they have a subsidiary that owns 10 office properties. If they want that property to just disappear. They don't want to think about it anymore. Yeah, they'll just default on the loans and say, you know what, we don't want to pay those loans anymore. The bank can have those properties. I believe that's what they're doing. because the so, so in other words, I just think this is a little bit confusing. They have corporate structures yep. that they set up where there is this big, we can think of it as an umbrella organization, which is Brookfield. They are then made up of tons of other different corporate entities, which each have their legal unalienable rights. Maybe I yes. just use the word unalienable there, but anyways. So when they default on this, you're saying it's very contained, I guess. Is yep. another it cannot spread throughout the They're almost, they, like, management knows this is going to happen. It's not like the CEO woke up one day and was like, holy crap, I thought we had, like, $20 billion in our bank account. There's only five. We're not going to be able to make this mortgage payment. Like, everything goes on fire. This no, they're... thing is a very calculated... Um, sorry, what was the correct word here? They foreclosed or they dismissed their payment? Yeah, they uh they they just stopped paying it. Like the reality is Brookfield just stopped paying it. And here's the thing. To me, this had to be a choice because Brookfield generated five point two billion dollars in cash flow last year. So on a one hundred sixty million dollar property complex, your interest payments are probably less than ten million dollars a year. So it's not like they don't have the cash to do it. So therefore my conclusion is they chose not to pay those off. And they have this corporate structure so that they can confine risk or mitigate risk. So if something does go wrong in this area of their real estate portfolio, it's very confined to that. So personally, I don't think that their commercial real estate is a problem. Yeah, there's negative headlines going around, but it's less, it's like half a percent of their property. And it's probably the property that they want to get rid of anyway. So I think that you're these headlines like to spread that around and be like, oh, Brookfield's going under, you know, they just defaulted on $100 million of real estate. Then when you look at the facts and you dig into it, it's like that company is 
very solid. It's very okay. It's going to be fine. All right. Conspiracy theory. There is a Daniel Prompt smear campaign going on by major media. They watched you drop that video. They had that on cue where they're like, all right, you dropped the Brookfield video tomorrow morning. We're ripping headlines out all over negative about Brookfield. <laughs> no, but I think you explained that pretty well. If anyone else has questions about that in the chat, let us know. Uh, Daniel, you mind if I take another question here? Or was there anything else you wanted to say on that one? Um, we'll see. We'll just see what happens. I mean, Brookfield, that they're going to report within the next few weeks. The CEO has said he believes the stock is incredibly undervalued right now. I agree with him. And they told the market a few months ago that if their stock remains down like this, then they may do a tender offer, which is essentially like buying back a ton of stock or that they're just going to start ramping up their stock buybacks. So I'm speculating that in the first quarter they will see or they will announce a stock buyback program. As a shareholder, I want them to because I think the stock is very cheap and very low right now. So I'm hoping they do. Then I'm hoping that kind of tells the market, you know, what's really going on. Or, you know, if it doesn't and they don't announce anything and the stock remains down, then I'll just continue dollar cost averaging at a lower price, which is also okay. Well, there you have it. I will keep cheering you on from the sidelines on that one, crying and waiting for Airbnb stock to go back down. <laughs> um, I'm going to take this quick one here. So from Robert, what is the best way to locate debt maturity dates on a stock? And do either of you look at this? Short answer is, yes, we do look at them. I'd say the best way to do that is in Stop and Lock, you can go to any company. We very conveniently list their press releases, SEC filings. The best place in my opinion to find this is from the 10Q or 10K filings. Uh, so I'll save us a little bit of time because I took screenshots, so I won't actually click here, but I did on my own time. And just to show you very quickly what they show in these reports, so this is a screenshot directly from Microsoft's 10Q. You could look at all the issuance of their debt, the maturities, the rates, and things like that. I admittedly am not an expert on debt, but my lens just to answer this question as an investor is I always like to look at the amount of debt they have, try to understand what type of interest rates they would be paying on that moving forward and just making sure that the free cash flow that the company is generating is going to be enough to cover these payments. Uh, for Microsoft specifically, one thing I actually did once the report came out in stock and lock, I wanted to just analyze their debt a bit to get a better feel for it. So one of my favorite metrics to look at is long-term debt. So we could actually see over time that Microsoft started taking out lots of debt uh in from you know around all the way back from 2009 uh right after 08 recession and it looks like it actually peaked at 79.38 billion dollars for the uh 2017 looks like q3 report so uh, what's up yeah jake i could walk people through this really quick too hell yeah let's do that i was actually done i was just saying their desk going down they have a lot of cash so when you look at their cash position and everything like that it covers the debt or in theory should. Anyway, Daniel, yes, please uh, take it away. Okay, so this is a company I've been looking into and own a little bit of. This is True North REIT. And one thing I did last week, yeah, last week, no, this week, earlier this week, is I wanted to actually find out how much of their debt mature or when their debt was maturing. So I just went True North Investor Relations in Google, go to their investor relations website. I went to their presentations right here went to their most recent investor presentation and then went through this. My internet is always slow when I stream. <laughs> Sorry about that. Boom, right here, lease maturities. So this is their debt maturities. 
And you can see that in 2023, they tell us that they have about 800,000 square feet of debt maturing. Um, then I went and I took a look at their portfolio size. They have 4.8 million square feet of real estate, which means that about 20% of their debt is going to mature over the next year. Then what I did is I went down to the next slide. Their average interest rate is 3.54%. Interest rates right now are about 6%. So what this ultimately means is if 20% of their portfolio is maturing next year and their average interest rate is lower than current interest rates, it means that their debt is going to cost more over the next year, which most likely means that their cash flows are going to come down. So that's kind of the thought process that I used and just like the steps that I took really quickly to go figure all that out. Yeah. So quick summary, go to the investor relations page. They usually do a good job. Here's one thing to look out for. If a company has debt and they are not doing what Microsoft does and what you just saw at True North, where they're making it very clear to investors what this debt is, that is a red flag. So you should also look out for that as well. If you're having trouble figuring out how the debt works for a company, it might not be you. It might be them. And you could always email their investor relations uh, department. If they don't answer your email, another red flag. Yeah, <laughs> they should. They should. Dude, you want to know what's actually really sad to me? I emailed Chewy Investor Relations because we talked about that stock a few streams back. And just quick summary, I think it's expensive, but love the business. Not buying today. But the CEO just keeps selling shares. It's like this ex-Amazon dude that's like building it up. So I emailed their Investor Relations Department in a very nice way. I was like, can you just walk me through? Like, are these scheduled sales? Is this part of the cop package? Like, why are the executives selling so much? It's not giving me confidence as a retail investor to go in and buy your stock when the executives working at your company are just selling it willy-nilly. They didn't answer me. Oh, interesting. Interesting, right? I was like, you know, it's kind of sad. Like, I, it makes me see, like, I kind of want to like the company, so I'm trying to become a little bit aware of that, too. Like, I don't want to fill any stories in my head that I might be making up about them. Yeah, and to revisit our Chewy conversation, I actually thought about this, and I think that you and I had a little bit of a miscommunication because I was trying to agree that the business is probably a solid business, like in terms of their customers and everything, like customers love them, they're clearly growing revenue. I clearly did not communicate that well at all. What I, what I was trying to communicate was overall that I just thought the stock was too expensive. Like if that stock was cheaper, I could see it. But at its current price, I was just like very stern. No, I'm, I, I don't see it at the price. I agree. And here's what no one's talking about, because I read through Chewy's investor relations docu uh, documents at their most recent 10Q. This is a company that's selling in the United States. In my opinion, they have a big moat. Their customers love them. My mom loves them. They're all talking to their friends. I heard about Chewy actually through customers, as well as a book that was talking about how to build super fans. Then I realized that Amazon execs are running it. So they're definitely doing the consumer friendly thing. I don't think it's easy for people to just stand up and ship and have warehouses that are automating dog, cat, horse food, subscriptions everywhere. So I do think that there's that moat. Uh, they are about to do international expansion. So their gross margins are around 28%. They're not super profitable, but they're killing in the United States. They're about to go international. So risks on that are, you don't know for sure it's going to work outside the US like it did. But in my opinion, I do think that they are going to do well internationally. I do see them taking the same behavior that had them generate a moat with their customer service and subscription programs, carrying it over there. And here's my tinfoil hat prediction, Daniel. They also mentioned in that report that they might take out 800 million 
of line of credit, which they might need for expansion. I don't think the market's going to like that. So the long-term bull thesis for me here is I'm being very patient. I want to see the stock get slapped. <laughs> and I also want them to go for this international expansion and take out that debt. I want to come in and get the dumpster deal when people are crapping on the stock. They took out debt. They're doing expansion. Their margins are going to go back down from that, right? But then the tail end of that is if they execute that well, if they redo in the U.S. what they did internationally, this could be the international pet company. Like someone has to do it. And I think Chewy right now is executing. They're beating out PetSmart. There's also BarkBox, which is more of like a boutique little subscription business. They're not killing it that well. So yeah, you know, super long-term, not buying today. But yeah, I, I appreciate you clarifying that. Agreed that their evaluation is high, but seemingly also agree that animals are cute. And Chewy definitely has like a nice business going for them. Lots of uh, repeat customers. Yeah, I mean, making sure my pets are fed is very high on the priority list. I think that's how, actually how I started off that conversation. I asked you about your cat, Tuna, and I said, if you were going through economic hard times, would you stop buying pet food? And then you said no. So I was like, cool, recession-proof business. Yeah, that would be like one of the last things I would cut out for sure. Anyway, uh, any other comments you're seeing here, Daniel? I mean, we've been riffing for an hour and a half. We really love going live with you all. And for everyone in the chat, thank you so much. If you haven't already hit the... Uh, like button on YouTube. We would really appreciate that. And if you're not already getting notified when we go live, YouTube bell icon, or we are on Spotify. Yeah, I think uh, I think this is a good time to end. Yeah, man, it's been a great Saturday morning. I think some of you guys, we're seeing a lot of familiar faces here. So it's always a pleasure seeing the same people every week. Daniel, any, any send-off phrases here? Nothing's coming to mind. No. <laughs> Amazing. Well, smile and wave. Thank you all so much. This will conclude episode number 29. It has been a blast, and we are really looking forward to being with you all next week. It will be on Saturday. We always announce the time on our Discord, and again, we are the co-founders of Stock Unlocked. Check out our website. Totally free to try. Added premium tier. We are trying to grow. Uh, your subscriptions that you pay help enable us to continue to build the business, and we are just getting started. We are building a lot of great new product, and dare I say, AI might be involved. So stay tuned. Yeah. I'm going to hit yeah. the end broadcast button. All right. Thank you, everyone, for watching, and uh, we'll be back next week. Goodbye.